Hello, friends. This is Dr. Benjamin Smith. Welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our digital space where we explore the 2,000-year-old Catholic intellectual tradition. Uh, today, I'm joined again by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Richard Pulzichelli. Uh, you may be aware of the fact that recently a new work of um, Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, has come out and uh, it's been well-received. Uh, in view of that, we thought we'd go back to an old classic, right, maybe to provide a little bit of context uh, to some of the uh, things, the themes that are developed uh, in this newest uh, sort of uh, release uh, of his thought. And that is uh, to look at the, the text, uh, Introduction to Christianity. As many of you probably know, uh, Dr. Bozzichelli is a, um, has a good bit of expertise in the thought of um, uh, Benedict XVI, Ratzinger. What do you, what do you say uh, when you're trying to say that, uh, Refer to him as a theologian. Describe my relationship with Ben. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. How would you describe? uh, Do you you say Benedict the Sixteenth or Ratzinger? It really depends, actually. Um, So, more often than not, I say Ratzinger, and the reason is that when I say Benedict the Sixteenth, I'm referring to, um, I'm I'm referring to him as Pope. Yeah. Okay. Uh, But most of his theological works were mm-hmm. written as a private theologian. I mean, mm-hmm. granted, he was, um, you know, a bishop for most of that sure. time, a cardinal, but nonetheless, um, he was putting forward his own, he's putting forward his own work, right? Um, right. his own thought, right? And yeah. whereas if he's writing a papal encyclical, well, he's exercising a different kind of function. That's and it's right. not that those encyclicals don't reflect his thinking, it's just that um, he's not just experimenting with ideas the way he does when he writes a, a private theological work and, and mm. says to people, well, you, you're free to disagree with me. Right. Even in um, his later works that were written when he was Pope, he actually, um, he actually uses his own name in, in, in the authorship, right? He mm, okay. still reminds you that he is Joseph Ratzinger. Right, right, and right. He, he explicitly says to his audience, this is just right. my own private theological reflection. You're free to mm-hmm. disagree with me. Right, right. That makes sense. So most of the uh, time again, I say Ratzinger just because that's where the there that's where the preponderance of his work is. Sure, sure. That makes sense. That's good. And it's good that he, you know, uh being you know, a good theologian makes these kinds of important distinctions. Um so I'll say Ratzinger here. So uh Dr. Uh Kelly has a lot of uh expertise in the theological thought of uh Ratzinger. Um and this book, you know, Introduction to Christianity is sort of you know, considered one of his classics, one of his, you know, you know, primary works. Um, that if you were going to go and sort of find, hey, here, what's a what's a good, concise, uh, or at least um, comprehensive uh, expression, right, uh, of a lot of his thought, that's uh, you can find it here. Um, it was published, uh, if I remember correctly, you said, uh, Rich in 1968. Uh, yeah, it's interesting time we think about this. Is right, that that's kind of not that far removed from the council, right? Right. It's also, you know, there's a lot of philosophical churn um, at this point, right? Obviously, the 1960s political and cultural as well, of course. Well, you know, if you think about uh, this is sort of, you know, towards the tail end of the um, uh, the height of sort of existentialism, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah a lot of influence still of Heidegger, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, these sorts of thinkers, um, you know, so it is a, a a pretty 
robust time, especially I think in continental philosophy. Obviously, in, in British and American philosophy, it's much more sort of analytic at that at that point. But here, you know, uh, you know, Ratzinger is sort of releasing this within, I think, kind of the philosophical world of more of continental philosophy, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, and uh, you can see sort of the emphasis, the the impact of von Balthasar here, and you know, uh, engagement with Heidegger and things of that nature, uh, for sure. What would you say, some you know, just in terms of the provenance of this work, you know, sort of its its context and sort of general importance? Yeah, well, I would say so. Here you are, and again, in the aftermath of the first of the Second Vatican Council, mm-hmm. and um, the world has changed shape pretty dramatically in the few years mm-hmm. since the council had opened in 1962, mm-hmm. closed in 1965, and mm-hmm. um, by 1968, you—I um, mean, 1968—that was um, that was when Humanae Vitae was written. So already there had wow. been a to um, address the question of contraception. Mm-hmm. And that particular question was, um, you know, that particular question was really uh, controversial, right? At the time, sure. At the time it was being done, there were a couple of different committees that Pope Paul VI had put together to address that matter. And they came back with um, the wrong answer. Mm. And so Paul VI kind of, you know, scrapped that. Right and and went in a different direction, influenced by figures from Poland, like Karol mm-hmm. Wojtyła. Gotcha. Um, but that just gives you an idea of what the world was like at the time. Sure. What was being written? Could you still have um, a coherent philosophical and Christian understanding of God? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that even a possibility for modern man? Mm-hmm. Um, we had gone to the point where people began to define themselves seemingly in opposition to the idea of God. Mm, that, sure. Right. That in order for me to understand myself as a free person, right. Someone able to determine my own acts and shape my own future. Mm-hmm. I could only do so if I'm not hemmed in by definitions of my nature that come to right. some, some omnipotent being. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, that's, I've always appreciated actually, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, expression of this, right, that, uh, you know, if God exists, I cannot be free, right, uh-huh. uh, which is a really interesting view, right? I mean, his view is if God exists, in essence, precedes existence, right, and your uh, the sort of divine ideas sort of block me in, right, right, right. Uh, to a particular plan or a particular schema, Um Interestingly, uh, I don't jump ahead too much, but interestingly, uh, you know, Ratzinger is going to say the opposite, right? Yes. Rather that that the theistic view, uh, you know, is the view that uh, grounds freedom, right? Right. Uh, right. In which freedom is given given a certain sort of uh, primacy um, within the the universe. Well, one question uh, that immediately comes to mind here, and this, yeah, just to kind of give you a softball here, but I think it's helpful. Um, you know, I could say, well, wait a second, Rich. <clears throat> there was, uh, there's been coherent expressions of uh, of the Catholic faith for you know centuries and centuries and centuries, right? It's not as if the theology started in the 20th century, yeah, right. I mean, you could, why couldn't you, uh, uh, you know, you could go to uh, maybe Saint John uh, of Damascus, you could go to uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, you could go to Blessed Duns Scotus. 
You could go to the Catechism of the Council of Trent. You could go to any number of sources that offer coherent, systematic expressions of the Catholic faith, right? Uh, so I gave you a spectrum there, right, to choose right. from, right? Um, why, why, another why, one? why another one? <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, aren't our libraries full enough, right? Because the contours of the modern mind are different now than they were then. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want to say that rationality is different. That's not the point. But the philosophical presuppositions that we make, our prejudices, the the way the way we just the way we think about things, mm -hmm. the way we frame questions, right? The way we right. uh, like what are what are our our primary values? Mm -hmm. Um. That context is going to shape the way we're able to receive mm -hmm. arguments, mm -hmm. right? So you 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 can't. I mean, obviously, we can all point to exceptions, including ourselves, sure. um, to what I'm about to say, right? But, but I would say that to the contemporary mind, it's it's unlikely that you can present Saint Thomas Aquinas and um, come away with uh, conversion. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It happens, sure it does, right? I mean, right. when I was younger, that that was exactly sort of what happened for me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I was a cradle Catholic, but I um my belief was very weak and mm -hmm. amorphous. But in college I encountered St. Thomas, among other yeah, figures. But sure. St. Thomas was the principal influence. Yeah, it strikes me that when you'd make that kind of move with an ancient figure, right? Uh -huh. Like say it was, you know, uh you know, some people uh, for some people for me, like St. Thomas was important, but especially in college, Dante was was important as well. There's almost sort of a willingness to detach you know uh, to say to say to your own time no right well but, there's a rebelliousness yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. now, a, now, i would say this is actually true maybe uh, more for people okay let me this is interesting i i feel right. like i'm i'm contradicting myself but i don't think no I'm, it's complicated though i think it's yeah, complicated yeah but so in our time right now when i say our time what i what i mean by that phrase here mm -hmm. is from the second half of the 20th century till mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Big swath, right? But um, what I mean is, there's a rebellious spirit in this time. Mm -hmm. And um, we like to throw things off. Right. Sure. And so when you push this to its, you push this to its um, logical consequences, right? Mm -hmm. There's something about people like you and me that's maybe in some ways even more radical than the radicals. Mm-hmm. Right, I think. Sure. Um, because the radicals are willing to throw off every uh, every last trace of tradition. Right, right. Whereas right. you and I are willing to throw off the rejection of tradition. Right, yeah, right, uh, right. And, and, and mm. that's where I think, yeah, you're right that there's a, for people of a certain mindset or a certain mm. attitude or disposition, mm. An encounter with an ancient figure can be compelling as an antidote for what they see in their own time as being mm -hmm. inadequate. Yes, yes. Yeah, I kind of see that. So there's a, I've talked, uh, shared before, I think there's a, uh, I think in one's intellectual and spiritual growth, like there's a, there's a, a, there's a kind of a dialectical structure in which sometimes there are negative, destructive mo moments Mm -hmm. And positive constructive moments. Yeah. I don't mean destructive actually in a bad way, 
I mean, there is a time where it's kind of like, I think healthy to say, um, Oh, to realize the radical superficiality of a lot of human existence. Right. Uh-huh. And then sort of in a kind of platonic move, pivot away from it and say, you know, like you live, this is the cave, you know, yeah. and you kind of reject it. Right. I do think you probably can't forever stay in that position. Too, mm-hmm. Right. I think that is a, a, a moment, a development of development and growth. Right. Think about when I was mm-hmm. renovating my basement in Nashville, mm-hmm. which took way too long. because <laughs> I, I remember <laughs> it wasn't until after I'd finished the project that I really had all the skills I needed to start. It. <laughs> there you go. But, um, but um, if you think about the time when you've got a pull paneling off the wall, That's right. yes, yes, yeah. pull down the drop ceiling and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a moment for that. There's right. a moment for that, um, that demolition part of the project. Yes. But if I yes. keep going, I'm gonna I'm gonna knock down the foundation of the, the whole house. thing. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Gonna be, that's right. not gonna be particularly good. That's right. And so I think you could see, you know, maybe uh introduction to Christianity as um I'm sure there are some critical aspects in it for sure, yeah. but there's also sort of a constructive thrust here that yeah. is, I think, as you said, look, I mean, we're not saying that reason itself changes, but the application, the use, uh, the direction, maybe the spirit, right, of reason uh, does develop, right, yeah. within uh, different historical epochs. I mean, I think as much as, you know, I, I myself love the uh, the purity of pure logic, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's not actual life in the sense that um, it's flesh and bone, right? Um, you know, we flesh and bone can use logic and hopefully will, but logic, you know, uh, in its abstraction, right? I would say isn't reality, right? Uh, in itself, anyways. Um, so we do have to touch down, right, on the historical circumstances that inform the way reason you know uh develops and that's that's what you know uh ratzinger's doing here right so if i were to these are what i say very often in criticism of the scholastic period which of which i'm a big fan actually um you know i i personally was deeply informed by scholastic thinking but most of what i do today isn't particularly scholastic mm-hmm. um but my my big criticism really of sort of the theology of the sume is um is that it traces out the faith along the lines of predetermined questions um and there are questions that were reasonable at the time they made a lot of sense to the people posing them right mm. um i mean i might be inclined to do the very same thing Sure. Um, to to outline a work asking right. a question, then another question, another question, right? I might be inclined to do that. But the problem is that that only really is a compelling exposition of the faith if the questions that you're asking are the questions your interlocutor is asking. Gotcha, yeah. Right? That's mm-hmm. the real issue. And mm-hmm. I think that to use, to rely kind of on the sume of the Middle Ages... I say that in the plural because Thomas wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to build an apologetic on that basis could be wrong-headed, or even say the um, you know the Baltimore Catechism, which follows a similar kind of question-answer model, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, the problem is you, you, you may not be asking, those may not be the questions your doctor has. Sure. I think it's a good, yeah, that's a good, uh, good way to put it. We'll give you just a, a hair pushback, but I agree with what you're saying here. Basically I'd say, you know, one of the things about say Plato or uh, Thomas Aquinas or, or any of these sorts of folks is the reason we cut, they still are studied, right. Is because they do ask questions that everyone asks at some point, right? Maybe yeah. not every question of the Summa, obviously, right? But there are questions that that the Summa or Plato or Plotinus, you know, address, right? That um, that's why they're classical, right? That they they do kind of stretch across time, right? Yeah. Um, at the same time, I want to agree and say there's plenty of questions that are in the Summa that aren't exactly the most relevant, right. To contemporary human experience. Right. There's a, yeah, there's a give and take, you know, uh, mm -hmm. there. I mean, I think there is some, and I'm sure you'd agree with this. And this is what makes the human existence complicated and interesting, right. Is there's a, there is a sort of, I would say, immutable, unchanging set of realities to the human existence. Yeah. And that's within a whole sort of network of changing realities, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, that, does that seem fair? Yeah, it does. Um, and like in defense of the scholastics, right? Mm. Uh, I say that the sume were written uh, according to a set of predetermined questions. That's true. And it's certainly true from our perspective as we read them hundreds of years later. Sure. Um, because no one today asked those questions to initiate those responses. Mm. But in the time right those were the current questions right right those were the questions that people in real life were actually asking and yeah, maybe the right. the theologian here is is um refining the question in mm. that rabbinical way that you know you want to ask the right question the question that opens to the answer you actually seek mm -hmm. um so you know five different interlocutors might ask a question that kind of beats around the same bush right right but you know but the master will kind of refine that question right and point it in the sure. direction that everybody seems to be wanting to go yeah um that's what happens in the sume right so in their own mm -hmm. time they are contemporary works they're sure they're not just frozen <laughs> right right right, but right they are nonetheless at this point 700 years old sure yeah, right. and and I think the uh, you're talking about uh, distinguishing these epochs in terms of uh, like what is the question, right? Yeah. Is a good way of doing it, uh, and and that and I think I just you know um, uh, noted uh, a version of that. You could say picks out a modern modern experience in existence, which is the question of freedom, right? Yeah. So you could say you know with Jean Paul Sartre, if there is a God then we are not free. And obviously Ratzinger say, if there is not a God, there is no freedom, right? right. <laughs> or only if there is a God is there freedom, right? Um, and and there, right, what comes to the fore is, well, what is it that, that modern man is concerned with? Well, he's concerned with freedom, right? Yeah. That, I mean, that is a central question. Ratzinger and Jean Valsart have opposite answers to it, Right. But that's a central question, right, uh, for, um, uh, you know, the sort of modern zeitgeist. Yeah, that's right. So the challenge, 
there's a whole set of challenges, right, that that we face. And this is kind of the first part of his, the first part of the book, uh, Introduction mm -hmm. to Christianity. Uh, before he actually gets into the discussion of the Christian faith, like ex expounding it, right, on the basis of the creed, there's this whole part of the book that deals with basically the preambles. Right. All right. And, um, you know, so what, what do we mean by God? And what's the challenge of believing in this sort of thing? What are the implications of believing it? And why is that? What are the pros and cons? How does the modern mind actually um, relate to this question? Mm. Now, I, I would say that from Ratzinger's time to ours, um, obviously many things have changed, right? I yes. Mean, mm. 1968 to now is... Like it begins time. to seem like a farther and further time ago, right? <laughs> it, yeah, it does. <laughs> but I would say that the book, maybe what makes the book so important for mm -hmm. us, like in, in, enduringly significant, even now, is that Ratzinger in his genius, I think, correctly perceived that we had entered upon the period of postmodernism. Mm. Uh, that we we were no longer in the modernist period. And so the frame here isn't anti-modernism. I see. Right. It's it's an engagement with the postmodernist mind. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's uh some, you know, pretty uh challenging questions in terms of histography here with um thinking about late modernity and its relationship to post-modernity. But in general, I think that that's correct. Yeah. I mean, so Kant, um, Kant, Kant isn't the prime primary interlocutor, right? Uh, at, at this point, right? Um, in terms of secular sources. Yeah. Right? As you mentioned, right? You, there, we're talking about the existentialists, the French mm -hmm. existentialists, right? Sure. And some of the German, uh, mm -hmm. but the, um, like Heidegger was immensely, Sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you've definitely pivoted from that sort of Kantian post-idealist or sort of late idealist um, sort of uh, European dialogue, right, uh, debate mm -hmm. uh, to sort of a post-idealist uh, world. Yes. Yeah. I think that's good. Right. So in this existentialist world, mm. the... Um... I wanted to find my own essence. Right. right? Sure. Yeah. For me, in I don't mean me really, but mm -hmm. for yeah, me, sure. the modern man, the contemporary human being, mm -hmm. um, my sense of freedom is my ability to be who I want to be, mm -hmm. right? To be even what I want to be, to mm -hmm. define the parameters of my own existence. Mm -hmm. uh, so if there's a nature given by God, if there's a structure to reality that that's given right. printed into it. I have nothing right. to say about it. Right. It, yeah. It places constraints. Yeah. You're not truly an individual. You're not truly a self. You're not truly free. Yeah. yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that is, uh, uh, sort of maybe like probably one of the primary, um, obstacles, challenges, right. That Christian faith, um, confronts, right. Um, especially as, you know, Ratzinger's writing Introduction to Christianity, 
I, uh, and that, yeah, that contributes to sort of, I guess, the difficulty, right? The obstacles that uh, one faces, right? In presenting the Christian faith. Um, the, um, uh, he opens in this uh, chapter, uh, chapter one, he has a, uh, well, I think it's a very interesting opening uh, where he, he compares uh, initially the, uh, the theologian with a clown who is sent to save a burning village. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's, it's not meant to be, I think a derogatory necessarily of the theologian in himself, but meant to sort of describe uh, the position, right. That the theologian finds himself in. If you don't mind, I, I'm just going to read a little bit of yeah, that. Uh, Cause I think it's a nice uh, entree into, into what, what he's going to do here. So uh, to begin uh, chapter one, Anyone who tries today to talk about the question of Christian faith in the presence of people who are not thoroughly at home with ecclesiastical language and thought, right? So presenting it to sort of an outside audience, right? Soon comes to sense the alien and alienating nature of such an enterprise. He will probably soon have the feeling that his position is only too well summed up in Kierkegaard's famous story of the clown and the burning village an allegory taken up again recently by Harvey Cox in the book, The Secular City. According to this story, a traveling circus in Denmark caught fire. The manager thereupon sent the clown, who was already dressed up and made for the performance, into the neighboring village to fetch help, especially as there was a danger that the fire would spread across the fields of dry stubble and engulf the village itself. The clown hurried into the village and requested the inhabitants to come quickly as possible to the blazing circus and help put out the fire but the villagers took the clown's shout simply for an excellent piece of advertising and meant to attract as many people as possible to the performance. They applauded the clown and laughed till they cried. The clown felt more and more like weeping than laughing. He tried in vain to get people to be serious, to make it clear to them that this was no stunt, that he was not pretending, but was in bitter earnest, and that there really was a fire. His supplicants only increased the laughter. People thought he was playing his part splendidly, until finally the fire did engulf the village. It was too late for help, and both circus and village were burned to the ground. It's a pretty powerful opening. What do you think about that, Reg? Yeah, it reminds me a little bit too of um Nietzsche's uh sure. aphorism about the madman, right? Yes, yes, yeah. But moving yeah, yeah. in a very different direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um which is interesting because uh sure. it, it's interesting because like Kierkegaard is considerably earlier than yes Nietzsche. yep mm -hmm. um but yeah so i i do i think that does kind of sum it up right mm -hmm. i mean think about how have you ever been to mass and you um you you see these moments in the liturgy or something where someone right. is expected to come forward from the nave and mm -hmm. and like perform some ritualist function. Sure. This might happen during RCIA or something. Sure. Um, and there's often a real sense of awkwardness about it <laughs> and almost uh, a sort of sheepish uh, embarrassment. Um, I, I, I tend, I notice this a great, like whenever I see it, I notice it right away. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be critical about it. Sure. I just, I think so. Yeah. I think that it is 
it just speaks to the fact that in the contemporary world, um, there is this, there is this, this sense that none of it's really true, mm -hmm. and that when you, when you find yourself engaging in these acts in public, you feel conspicuous because um, you're acting as if it is true. You're the clown. Right. <laughs> the world watching um, just knows that you're a fool. Here's the thing is the world totally misunderstands, like if we're going to carry the analogy out, right? Yeah. Or the metaphor here. The, the world totally misunderstands, right, what is going on. Yeah. Right. They see an entertaining market-driven performance. Yeah. And and find it funny, right? Uh, whereas the reality is the clown really is trying to warn them of an imminent danger and problem, right? Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, so there's a kind of fundamental misunderstanding. It's, it's almost as if there's nothing the clown could do under the circumstances to remedy the problem. Yes. Because if he starts shouting even more, look at that crazy clown. <laughs> right. Yeah. And right. So, and by the way, you know, the um my reference to contemporary liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. Um it, it, you notice that uh, in many places, mm -hmm. I, I find this really common in Texas, by the way. Um at the end of mass, the um, congregation will applaud. Interesting. Yeah, they and they're applauding for the choir. Um, which gives you the sense, right, that this they they obviously they missed the point that liturgical music is part of the ritual of the mass. It's not a sure. performance. Yeah, well but intended. It, it I'm sure to this issue but, of yeah, the clown. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. So. Sure. Um, yeah, there's nothing he could do under the circumstances to, to actually show them what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, what he has to do is stop being a clown, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And, and, and that I think is what. That I think is what um, Ratzinger is trying to do sure. in the opening pages of this book. Right. right? So, He's saying, "Well, let me, yeah. let me. I'm not going to come as the clown." I'm not going to come with the same old, um, you know, the the tired repetition of previous formulations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the post-Vatican II period, that's a, um, that's kind of the standard theological line, right? Is to avoid uh -huh. just stale repetitions of um, prior formulations. Now, I think sometimes those old rep, those old mm. formulations are just necessary and correct. Sure, uh, but I understand the point, right? You, yeah, I, I understand the point. I, I I wonder if that is a little little too much 1960s zeitgeist itself. Yeah, uh, well, it's 1968. I'm, yeah, I'm never I, I'm never <laughs> bored of saying the creed. The creed never bores oh, me. Okay, but right. and and, yeah, and, but... and I recite it every week, and and. During my own piety, I, I, I say it every day, and or say when I recite the Lorica of St. Patrick or something like that. Right, right? those are uh, ancient, well-worn things, and I never find them boring. Okay, so I think I think Ratzinger would be right um, on board with that. I don't think right. he thinks that's the boring part. Right. I don't think he thinks that's what needs to be changed. 
Um, I think what he thinks need to be changed is the way we actually kind of explicate that to people. Okay. Um, so the, um, in fact, the second half of the book, Introduction to Christianity, is mm -hmm. about the creed, right? He's interpreting sure, the content sure. of the creed. Right, right. But right. he's doing so in language that the contemporary interlocutor is likely to understand and to... I got you. Right? It's, it's, he thinks these are... It's, it's speaking to the questions that this person has mm -hmm. in the modern world. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think that even this idea today, this idea of um, of eschewing stale repetitions, right, of old formulas, I think that in itself has become a trope. Mm -hmm. But um, but at least at the time of Ratzinger, I think there was this sense that in order to reach the contemporary person with the faith, right, you had to explicate it in ways that that were just different the frame sure. mm -hmm. again that doesn't mean that the content you're explicating is different sure it's sure that the way that you're actually casting it philosophically is different right right so you could say something like look um the catechism of the council of trent uh is a wonderful uh catechetical instrument of its time um spoke well to the situation um for many might still have some relevance and interest, right? Uh, but in the larger picture, right, you know, uh, whatever we may appreciate about the Catechism of Council of Trent, it's not tuned into, right, um, modern experience, modern language, modern, uh, the modern sort of experience, right? Yeah, the phrase that Ratzinger uses frequently in his mm -hmm. writings right is uh, he said he'll say things like um that this particular way of casting the problem makes this issue in the faith comprehensible once again mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so he he'll talk about um soteriology or eschatology right sure and sure. completely reframe the whole problem Mm -hmm. And he'll say that that now, if you look at it this way, it's comprehensible to the contemporary person. Whereas before, mm -hmm. in our older language, it just didn't make sense to modern men. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I got you. Well, one of the issues that yeah. comes up yeah. in um, Introduction to Christianity, now this will be in part two of the book, really, but mm -hmm. one of the issues that comes up in Introduction to Christianity is um, St. Anselm's casting of the incarnation the reasons for the incarnation in Cordeus homo right mm -hmm. according to the satisfaction theory of atonement which ratzinger believes to be just no longer um coherent in the contemporary world yeah um and he maintains that position actually even in his new book he still mm -hmm. he refers back to that same issue again um but he that doesn't mean that what anselm is actually driving at is is incoherent it's just that the way he frames the issue just no longer mm -hmm. makes sense to people yeah I, i'll be honest i'll say i i've never run across a an account that makes more sense to me than Anselm. but i'm a bit uh uh out of the uh out of the main out of the mainstream yeah you are by your experience. own definition <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. i mean uh the satisfaction the theory retrograde is, that's uh, right <laughs> yeah, that's right uh the satisfaction theory has always made the most sense to me 
but uh regardless i do understand um i do understand the point right uh i might i might disagree with them on that example but even if i were to try to argue for anselm uh anselm's position i think i'd have to argue for it in sort of ways that were um um I couldn't just repeat Anselm, right? The feudalist, right. aristocratic, monarchical paradigm mm -hmm. that's being used is just like not the frame of mind of the contemporary person. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would I would I would push on the you know on the issue of justice. Um like framing it in terms of justice and injustice, disobedience and punishment. Um still has a little purchase, I would say, uh for people, but I grant you know that uh -huh. uh, that that it doesn't have as much purchase maybe as yeah. other ways that people want to explain the incarnation. Even so, like let's say that you're particularly fond of Anselm on that point, right? Um, that's fine mm -hmm. for, as a private theological sure, position, right. but mm -hmm. if we have a mission in the church to, mm -hmm. um, if theologians, right? If theologians in particular have a have a role to play in in articulating the gospel to the contemporary person, right? And mm. making it um and doing so with a charismatic value. Sure. Right. That they would be inclined to believe. Um then if you ask a question of efficiency, right? Could mm. I bring Anselm to the contemporary person and make it really sympathetic to them? Mm. Maybe. Mm. But you'd have to do some work. But I have to do some work, and here's yeah, the thing: I agree with that. Anselm, yeah. in his own time, Anselm is trying to do the very thing that I should be trying to do. Sure, he's yeah. not interested in making his own position sympathetic. He's in, he's right. interested in articulating a position which would be sympathetic to mm. the people he's trying to bring the gospel to. Sure, right. So he's really yeah. trying to bring the gospel to people of his own time. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I like uh, on this point. I like. Uh, very different theologian <laughs> uh uh lonergan's um assertion right mm -hmm. that um well that one of the primary tasks of the theologian is to mediate right between revelation and culture yeah, um yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's a a pretty apt uh saying there right yeah and that's what ratzinger's trying to do sure yeah. right so he that's finds theory. himself in western european culture of the sure. late 20th century mm -hmm. um and if you're the guy you know trying to alert the world that it's burning down right um <laughs> how do you need to present yourself how do you need to present mm -hmm. the problem to them so he kind of casts it in terms of really an option right um okay. I know that after John Paul II, people sometimes recoil against what we call fundamental option theory. Sure. Um, but just in case someone in my audience is being, you know, really sensitive to that particular issue, mm -hmm. I, I want to point out that when John Paul II is talking about fundamental option theory in Veritatis Splendor, he's talking about um, some forms of fundamental option theory, right? Sure. It's not really... So it's a it's a broad concept, fundamental option. Mm. Well, it seems Ratzinger to me what he uses yeah. fundamental option language quite a bit. Actually, it's mm -hmm. just that it, it's not the moral question, it's not the moral theory that that John Paul II is criticizing in Veritatis Splendor. 
I think that's correct. It's, I would rather see him as uh, engaging dialectically and um, with his interlocutors, right, who are existentialists, right, who think about things in terms of, right, um, you know, sort of uh, radical choices. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that's the, you know, he's, he's, he, he is entering into their framework to some degree. Yeah. Right. Um, and giving him the opposite answer. Yeah. Right. What world am I going to live in? Mm-hmm. That's right. right. That's right. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So really what he's doing. Can you just say with Jean-Paul Sartre is really good on the, at this, I think for somebody to read on the opposite side, yeah. one thing he's accessible, right? Uh, it's not like trying to read Heidegger. <laughs> Heidegger is fantastic, okay, but Heidegger is very, very difficult. Uh, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, makes this point that, and, and there's there's some there's something I think we have to sort of grant here, that, you know, uh, say you have a difficult decision to make, mm-hmm. the person to whom or the source that you submit to, right, or the norm, right, that you submit to on making that choice, right? Somebody, uh, maybe a popular norm is, well, you got to make yourself happy. Uh-huh. And the other norm is, no, you must pursue virtue in order to uh, attain the beatific vision. Whatever one, right, you submit to, it's still you choosing which norm to submit to. Right, right. Right. And so there's still sort of, there is a, you could say, well, I didn't have any choice. I had to follow the path of virtue because that's what the Catholic faith teaches. Well, what Sartre would say is, well, you didn't have to follow the Catholic faith. Right. Right. You were free you, to go elsewhere. That's right. You chose to submit to that as a norm, right. right? And that's the kind of radical choosing, right? Yeah. Uh, options, right, that Jean-Paul Sartre is talking about. And that Ratzinger is trying to give a rebuttal to. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, for for Ratzinger, the question is, the question is, which world do you want to live in? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and and in this way, even though he's talking to the contemporary interlocutor, he's actually mm-hmm. taking a really, really ancient approach. Okay. Right. I mean, going back to the Old Testament, to the story mm-hmm. of the garden, mm-hmm. right, to the discourses in Deuteronomy. Um, all the way through the entire Bible into the patristic period, right up into the Middle Ages. The question is um, the two ways, mm-hmm. right? The way of life or the way of death. The way of wisdom, the way of folly, the way of righteousness, the way of debauchery. Um, which which way do you wish to go? Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's kind of the way that... Um, course that's you know what john paul ii was doing in evangelium vitae the culture of life the culture of death barring right out of the didache from the first century right um the uh there are two ways the way of life and the way of death and the difference between them is vast the um this is kind of what ratzinger is doing but he's not casting it quite in those terms he's really sort of laying out the existential options about what i can assent to intellectually Right. Or what mm. if this is, what if I make this metaphysical statement or I deny that metaphysical statement? What mm. are the implications, right? What kind of world do I, do I live in? If I, if I opt for a world in which Logos is supreme or a world in which say, um, you know, the transient mm-hmm. is, mm. is supreme, 
Right, right. Yeah, so yeah, I think that's that's a good way uh, uh, of couching it, right? And a way, again, that his interlocutors should understand, right? I think especially if you were to work through, say, the introduction to Christianity, uh, the part you're talking about here with the uh, uh, the primacy of Logos, right? Yeah. That comes in the chapter four, I believe it is, yeah, uh, which is entitled Faith in God Today. And there, right, it's opened up as a, um, uh, you know, um, the choice for atheism or Christian theism, right, is a choice between the primacy of logos or the primacy of matter, right, materialism, right. or as you put it, transience. Uh, now, that's really interesting to me, right? Uh, you know, here, uh, Ratzinger does concede in this chapter that there are, of course, more than two metaphysical systems. Um, but he claims that, you know, sort of it kind of comes down to these choices, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately. Might want to quibble with that just a little bit, but nevertheless, I mean, I think it's a pretty good move overall, right? Uh, that these are your primary um, choices. And really the, the primary choices, whether it seems Logos is primary or not, right? Yeah. Um, and that is an interesting thing to think about, right? Uh, I do... Um, Oh, well, I think his name's gonna escape me here, but um, you know, do we ultimately think that? So here's the choice, right? Uh, of of being of being a Christian at a fundamental basis, right? Do I think that the world comes from uh, logos? There's sort of thought, truth, understanding, right? That sort of thing. Or a consciousness. Or is it is it rather that matter, right? Um, and sort of brute material facts, I guess, are what's basic and fundamental. And things like consciousness and truth are um, sort of the upshot right mm-hmm. of material things right? yeah the epiphenomenal yeah 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 so they sort of uh they emerge from matter in some way right right so really you're talking about the, uh, the um in the contemporary world right marxism has had a tremendous influence sure mm-hmm. and marxism is is starting from this premise that mind comes from matter rather than the other way around called dialectical materialism for a reason right dialectical materialism and um and so yeah that that really does i think illustrate where this option is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um we all have the experience of mind right Mm -hmm. we have that experience of mind um the question isn't whether there's mind and whether there's matter it's really a question of which is primary Mm -hmm. yes that's right yeah yeah right and um and so if you if you look at much of contemporary culture, even now, right, it, it's 50, 55 years later, but but even now, mm-hmm. the um, if you look at contemporary culture, people speak about you know the universe, the intentions of the universe, the universe right. <laughs> wants this sure. to happen or something. Sure, yeah, yeah. There, you've got exactly what's going. This is exactly the issue: a sort of repaganization of the world in which even. If you um, even if you have some sort of deified concept, some sort of idea that there's a mind 
behind matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the mind of matter, right? It's, yeah. it's the mind of the universe. Mm-hmm. It is itself fundamentally material and limited. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the Judeo-Christian context, that's not the way it works, mm-hmm. right? Rather, um, matter is produced right by that which is wholly immaterial mm-hmm. and um and so there's something there's something in it then that's really transcendent even in your own consciousness mm-hmm. it allows for the possibility of a consciousness that isn't merely material mm-hmm. now it sure. might be the case right it might be the case that there is purely material consciousness it might be the case that like dogs and cats right they're they're conscious they have some kind of sure awareness yeah, power, sure. Mm-hmm. but they yep but the idea of a spiritual soul is something mm-hmm. that really depends upon uh, upon a world that's not merely material. Right, right. No, look, there's, yeah, I, I think you also want to say, like, there's a lot more to Christianity than that, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Deeply, right? Yeah. But that's the basic ground, right? You're, uh, to, to choose Christianity is to choose a world in which there is uh logos in which logos is primary right um one thing that strikes me about this is that uh, if you can save the world the other way uh this is more of a philosophical point than than what he says here but if we conceive the world the other way i don't see you have any guarantee that the world is fundamentally rational i agree right yeah i mean it seems to me if you don't conceive of it this way then you know Maybe the world's rational. <laughs> Maybe it's not, right? <laughs> you know, uh, could I be, could right? I could know that for my consciousness right now in this instant, mm-hmm. the world is structured in a way that I am describing as rational. Mm-hmm. But that's about as far as I can go. I, I don't know if in the next instant it'll stay that way. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this takes us all the way back really to the problem of... Um, David Hume, or, or even mm-hmm. uh, Heraclitus. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the flux, right? You know, it's such that you know you're like, uh, you know, uh, yeah. there, there's a there's a swerve in the flux that, that that causes things to happen. The swerve is ultimately random, right? Um, yeah. You know. So I think you know you you really, if any argument is going to be reliable, right? If any operations of rationality are going to be reliable. I think you have to presuppose, right, the primacy of logos, right? Um, you know, otherwise, again, or you could maybe give a Kantian version or something, but you know, you're you're going to be working out your reason. You just don't know that you know the way reason works is the way the world is, right? That's right. Maybe maybe, the, maybe yeah, you know, where reason zigs, the world zags. And you only see it through the lens of your own reason, and therefore you don't really notice the discrepancy, right? Um, now, but that's, I mean, I obviously, can't escape can't escape the problem of time, right? From that perspective, yeah. right? Sure. Because, because again, remember from from Kant's point of view, time is one of the mental categories. That's right. Yep. Right. Absolutely. He's not saying there's anything ontological about it, which means mm-hmm. that if you're really being rational, mm-hmm. like right now in this mm-hmm. instant. That you have rationality, you'll have to recognize that unless there's some guarantor of the structure of reality or the structure of your mind, mm-hmm. then um, then that 
you you don't even know if those rational categories will remain the same. Mm. You know mm, what they true, are right, right now. Sure. Yeah. As you're right, thinking. Right. Yeah. But you don't know if they're always going to be that way or if they always have been. Remember that Hume had raised the problem of the enduring consciousness of the enduring sure. identity, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um and um and Kant's way around that problem is the categorical model, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um so he's 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 aware of the fact that time can't be understood as ontological here. It has to be understood mm -hmm. as a as a category. Sure, sure. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's correct. Um to to bring us back then to, to what Ratzinger is saying here, right, is you one way you could put this, right, is that to accept the God and Christianity is at a basic level to accept the intelligibility of the rationality of the universe, you know, of the world. Yeah, yeah something like that. Um at a more basic level, how would you put that in terms of using this as an instrument to make faith more intelligible to modern man? I mean, is that it? Is that is is one of the ways of doing this saying, look, actually Christian faith involves an option for a worldview in which reason and science are reliable and and, uh, yeah. and therefore this should be an option that is open to you as a man of reason and science? I would say so. And I would go further and say that um, the denial of it mm -hmm. should be, the denial of it should strike you um, if you want to live in a rational world, mm -hmm. should strike you as um, as kind of really deeply problematic. Sure. Right. You lack the guarantor mm -hmm. of the very thing that you that 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 you want to adhere to you say you're a man of science a man of right. reason um but good luck with that mm -hmm. right in a world that has no guarantees right yeah 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 in which the the logos isn't sort of uh uh primary i'm trying to think through um that view the materialist view right uh -huh. And, you know, I mean, it always ends up to me to kind of end up in sort of a, a weird position where there's, you know, um, random of inexplicable random events, right, seem to be the ultimate explanation. Yeah, know? that's right, which is really no explanation. Yeah, that's right. It's right? no if explanation. I say it just happened. And I don't know why, and we can't say why, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and then the rest of the universe is deterministic, right? So you have this weird blend of randomness and determinism. Right, know? and the argument is, look, it's a weird blend of randomness and determinism, so why do you have any confidence in the determinism? It's right, sure. Mm -hmm. It's purely coincidental that every time you drop something, it falls. Right, yeah, um, it could be, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Right, so... um. Yeah, so this is the this is a very strange feature of the contemporary mind mm. that we we appeal to randomness as a as an explanation, as a principle, as a principle, right? <laughs> right. Um, that seems to be you know. I mean, you literally that's weird. just told me. You literally <laughs> just told me that your principle, your your one of your fundamental principles is that there is no account, that right. there's no explanation. Right. Whereas I'm saying my fundamental principle is that there is an explanation. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, by default, I win. 
Like I, I just won the <laughs> argument because you, you just admitted you had no explanation. Mm-hmm. So on the other side of it, what is at stake here? Like, okay, if it, in in a certain way, the way we've just described it, it seems the most you know sort of blazonly obvious, reasonable option. Yeah, is to go with theism, right? The primacy of logos, right? What's at stake for the person who sees it the other way? And this is like, no, you know, like, like this is not a legitimate option. Yeah. Now, admittedly, I want to say, I want to do want to say one thing I, I do think needs to be brought in a little bit is uh, there are a lot of just superficial people that <laughs> yeah. haven't gotten to the point where they can take, they have, they can take this seriously. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. So, but setting that aside, take like the serious person. Yeah. There are right. a lot of intelligent people. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So like with the intelligent, serious person who says no, like I can't do that fundamental. Like that option, I'll put it, makes life impossible. Uh-huh. So what do you think for Ratzinger? They see or they fail to see. Right. Um, but for one thing, I, I just don't, I don't think, I think that for Ratzinger, they fail to understand that, they fail to understand that um, the very rationality of the universe is at stake. Sure. Okay, I, I think they just don't see that. Mm. Um, now, I, I think that as far as affirming the existence of such a god, um, what they find unacceptable about it is that it doesn't, it seems that it doesn't take account of the variability in the world. Mm. Um, I, I think that for them, I mean, I'm basing, I'm basing this response um, to some extent, you know, on the, the people that I've personally known who've held views like this, right? If I if I understand their positions correctly, um, when you and I look out the window and we see consistency and and um, form and and similarity, right? Um, they don't. They see that things kind of, in some ways, happen to resemble each other, but that the most fundamental thing is difference. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think they're comfortable saying that, you know, that difference, that difference cuts all the way into human nature, what we would call human nature. Fair enough. Uh, Yeah. And they might say that there isn't really any, you know, human nature as such. There's just Mm -hmm. people, individuals, right? Right. Right. Um, each one to be understood on his own terms. Uh Uh-huh. And that for them, this is a valuable thing. This is a they they don't they don't want to lose the ability to say that that I'm encountering not a kind, um, but a but an individual, okay. distinct, new, unrepeatable reality. And you could see actually the sensitivity to this view uh-huh. is, is you could see this in the writings of John Paul II, mm-hmm. Carol Retiwa, right? Because mm-hmm. he he emphasized. Um, He's put a he spent a lot of time talking about the unique, unrepeatable individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's getting at this idea that that's that's a value today for people to be yes. able to see that. Yes. 
Yeah, so it's interesting to because I think you're uh, correct uh, about uh, Carol Votiva, but it's also here in Ratzinger, right? So yeah. later on in this chapter, as he's developing it, one of the things he he moved, he sort of transitions from talking about the primacy of logos to person, right? And um, he sees that as a tract or a trajectory, I should say, um, where you know you come to realize that that in saying that logos is primary, you're saying that person is primary, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, that in a way uh, um, that this allows for you know love and freedom to be sort of at the roots of the universe. Um, but see, the person. It seems to me the agnostic or the atheist is saying that's exactly what theism doesn't do. Yeah. Right. That theism make like, so here, I'll put it this way. There's a lot of philosophical argumentation. Let's just say I'm a, I'm a serious atheist. So I'm going to play that role. Maybe. But there's a lot of philosophical argumentation there that really, if we're honest, we don't know the final conclusion to. What I do know is that I value myself and the people around me, mm -hmm. right? And that they matter more to me than some God who may or may not exist, some metaphysical logos that may or may not exist. I don't know whether materialism or logos is primary, but I know that I exist and that I value myself and those around me. And I want to live for them and for that. Yeah. How would you respond to that? Yeah. So, um, or how would Ratzinger respond to that sort of, right. Sort of uh, objection. I would say that, um, you know, f for him, the very idea of, um, the very idea of an other as an ultimate value presupposes the idea of ultimate otherness. Okay. Gonna have to unpack that a little bit there. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, so for Ratzinger, you mm -hmm. know, the this comes out more in the second half of the book, but okay. um but because now we're getting into like the the logic of Christianity. Sure. Um and so it's more than just the, you know, the God of the philosophers, as he describes it, right? The God of the philosophers is simply the ontological account of, of the world, that mm. there's things make sense in the world. Things are consistent. There's a cause for all things, right? There's an ultimate source of being that's totally transcendent of the limitedness of the world. Um, but the God of the Bible is, is the God um, who reveals himself, the God of relationship. Uh, and so for, for Ratzinger, the idea that the very logic of the world is a logic of relationship, a logic of love, uh -huh. I see, I see. is dependent upon this idea of a self-communicating logos. Right, right. Yeah. So the my sort of objection here, which is an objection I've heard, and I and and I think uh is is an interesting one. One of the reasons it's interesting is it concedes the possibility of what you're saying, but just says, look, we don't actually know, right? There's these huge questions and we don't know them. So there's an agnosticism here, right? Or some yeah. Kind of moderate skepticism. But I do know this part about my existence, right? But I think what you're arguing, if I understand correctly, is that the very 
ground to which they are retreating, which is sort of interpersonal respect and uh, communion and value, right, is in fact um, what is most highly and deeply realized in the Christian worldview. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's a powerful answer. And I would go. I would say too that one thing to remember is that Ratzinger, by framing the issue in terms of ultimate option, um, he is avoiding the need to demonstrate conclusively, mm. on the basis of philosophical argumentation, mm -hmm. that this mm -hmm. assertion is correct. That's good. Yeah. Right. Good. So he's saying, he's saying, look, I, I get how you find that, um, you know, if you want me to demonstrate something philosophically in your mind that may mean that i demonstrate it mathematically apodictically but i i'm not claiming to be able to do that mm -hmm. but i am holding out to you an option as reasonable as any other option that you might make about your life right mm. just as if you you believe yeah. your mother loves you yeah yeah right um i'm it's as reasonable as that yeah and interestingly what those decisive right is that it embodies at a higher level the very values that that you actually do adhere to right i'm not trying to give you the philosophical argument mm -hmm. and then ask you to conform your values to it i'm i'm actually finding right. where your values are uh, yeah, and good. i'm point and i'm saying that they yeah. point in this direction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting you know um that's a, a good move. It's not, though, maybe as novel as one might think, right? Uh, there are a good number, any number of dialectical platonic arguments, right, that work in that fashion, mm -hmm. right, where Plato shows, well, what the interlocutor wants is what's really desirable, right? Yeah. You, you know, and, and, and then shows that, well, what you're going after isn't what's really desirable, so you're not actually doing what you want to do, yeah. right? That that sort of thing, right? Uh -huh. But but here's a higher way. There's an object of of this desire that you haven't seen, right? And so I'm going yeah. to bring that into view, right? Uh, right. That sort of thing. Yeah, right. and Ratzinger's thinking is is this is one of the features of his thinking. He mm -hmm. is as surprising um, as Plato tends mm -hmm. to be in this way right? sure the way that right. plato has this unexpected mm -hmm. he comes up with an unexpected solution right to mm -hmm. a problem ratzinger yeah. is very much that way mm -hmm. he lays mm -hmm. out all these all these um points that seem to be pointing in one direction right because he, he's he's giving the argument of his interlocutor right which is sure pointing over here and and then he kind of rearranges the board right right the same pieces and he says, but no, it actually points. It actually sure. points over right, here. right. It's one of the. Uh, I know we've gone long here, so we'll just start to wrap up. But a couple of just quick uh, resonances uh, that I might note, and then I'll let you uh, conclude uh, conclude for us. Um, you know, uh, reminds me a little bit of the best, some of the best parts of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, right. Where Lewis, you know, uh, talks a great deal. You know, what was. I would say that arguments and evidence were important stages in Lewis's conversion, and he says so himself. Mm -hmm. But he says there was that, like those were sort of uh, preludes, right? That the that the moment was when he became convinced that his desire for transcendent love had a real object, right? Uh -huh. and, that, and, and that like that that experience of being utterly convinced, right? That, now he called it joy, right? That yeah. is that. Um, 
that 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 desire he says that we have for infinite love and goodness has a real object right and so for him right it was realizing that that was in fact the christian god right yeah um yeah i think it's very well stated um one other resonance uh not uh to me would be a little bit on the side of uh William James, right, uh, wow. who um, argues a very different tradition, of course, not at all historically linked uh, in any way, right, uh, except for maybe in deep antecedents in, in ancient philosophy, uh, but no you know, direct historical connections here, but uh, still sort of, you know, kind of resonates in a parallel way with the idea that, um, you know, you, it's a matter of, um, you know, where does the, what is it that you want to stake your life on, yeah. right? What is it that you want to bet yourself on? Um, and, and importantly, you know, James, and I'm sure Ratzinger would agree with this, you know, you know, any old thing isn't worth it. <laughs> you know, right. it's not as if just anything will do, right, um, uh, in James's view. I mean, he says it one of the things. It has to make life livable. It has to make it so sure. that you can get up in the morning and you feel and, motivated and, to constructive action. Sure. And and one aspect of it being livable is it seems coherent or consistent and reasonable, right? Right. But that's a little different than proof, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think James does a good job of bringing that out. He's like, look, I can't just go for anything, right? If you tell mm -hmm. me to, you know, plop down on living for the fairy queen, well, no, I'm right. not going to do not that. a live you know? option. Yeah, right. Like that doesn't, that's not coherent to me. It doesn't like consistent. But this other thing, right, is, right, that is if you're talking about the importance of interpersonal love, right? And one of the things that he talks about in favor of Christianity, right, in his view, is this idea, right, that there, uh, that at the end of the day that the universe is personal and free, right, is the universe that he wants to bet his life on, right? right. Um, and that it's, and that it, it resonates more with his own deepest aspirations. And he thinks the deepest aspirations of his audience. Um, uh, but in any event, those are just two two resonances there. If you know, just if you're gonna give us a final kind of note here uh, on the book, you know, uh, statement or maybe something by way of summary, Rich, that'd be great. Yeah, so I think that this book is one of the most important works of theology of the 20th century. Okay. Um, and I think the 20th century is often um, given short shrift by some more conservative Catholics. Um, but I think unless Christ returns um, <laughs> hundreds of years from now, people will probably look at the 20th century as a golden age um, similar to the 13th century. Okay. Um, we had some really, really great thinkers at that time, uh, important thinkers. Um, and I kind of think that this book is going to have enduring significance for hundreds of years. Now, not everyone agrees with that, and I understand why they wouldn't. Sure, but um, but I think so, and and I I think so because it comes at the dawn of a time where there's a fundamental shift in mentality in the philosophical current. Yeah, sure, and it addresses that shift. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where that's my my assessment of it. Yeah. Um, I do think that it succeeds in making Christianity comprehensible to the contemporary mind. Now, obviously, it hasn't convinced everyone sure. who's ever read it, but mm -hmm. um, but I do think 
that if you're a contemporary postmodernist sort of person, if you're a person who's driven by existential questions, and you're approaching the problem of belief and the problem of Christianity, this is the kind of book that you need to read. Yeah, great. That's good. That's good. I appreciate that, uh, Richie. I think it's, uh, uh, yeah, those are good words. I think this is a, a rich text, uh, an interesting text, one that's provocative. Um, certainly, if it's engaged with seriousness, I think, uh, even if you don't agree with all of it, uh, it's one of those kind of texts that will you know sort of uh, lead to personal growth uh, and uh, development, you know. Um, and so, and, uh, you know, there's certainly that's what we aspire to in both our intellectual lives and in our Christian lives. Um, thanks so much, Rich. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. It's a good text. Uh, maybe we'll do a little bit more of this, uh, talking about some of the uh, great texts of the 20th century and theology uh, going forward. Um, I hope that uh, everyone's enjoyed this. If you stuck around to the end, please like uh, this video. Please share it with others. Check out the content, the courses that we have for sale over at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Also, you'll find a link below to our Patreon site. Um, we've been a little slow getting Patreons, and we'd really appreciate your support in that area uh, as we go forward. Until next time, God bless.